Did you chatter up front? Yeah, let's, let's, very, let's very naturally and calmly talk to each other. <laughs> okay. So I need to say something like up front. Absolutely. When I, when I say I'm going to burn down the New York Times building, I want to like clarify it's not a threat. I'm not, mm-hmm. like, going to physically burn it down, but, like, spiritually, like, I, I, I will destroy the New York Times. Parody satire. It's parody. Yeah. Then it's, well, I mean, so it's, it's like, yes, parody satire in that, like, I'm not going to physically burn down, but I am going to destroy them actually. And I will not rest until we, uh, Current Affairs has conquered their building. Yeah. We're going to plant yeah. our fucking flag. I've had it. I fucking had it. This was, this was the no, last no. straw. Unfortunately, they're all fairly close to Central Park, so it'll be a quick and easy, you know, travel distance won't be too bad. Line them up with Chris Matthews. No more bed bugs in the new American Soviet Empire. Whoa, dude. Whoa, dude. Whoa. We gotta get it fumigated. That will be an ish. You're using tropes. It's a big tower. Yeah, watch those tropes, David. <laughs> So we should say that we are blessed to have on Lida Gold today. Thank you, Lida, for joining us. Thanks for having me. I have a lot uh, yeah. to yell about. Awesome. Awesome. I can't wait to yell with you about these things. <laughs> Our last episode was also very angry. We had a lot of uh, mad energy. So mad. let's just carry that forward. Sign of the times. It's what people need right now. <laughs> yeah. Some exegesis. So... so- uh, Lida is a fiction writer and the amusements and managing editor of Current Affairs, which is a fantastic publication if you're not already reading it and uh, even subscribing to it. I highly recommend that you do that. If, if uh, you're in some sort of very strange uh, um, content consuming world where you listen to us before you read Current Affairs, <laughs> uh, which is very strange, then you would uh, like the Beta O'Rourke on Mushrooms piece that originally ran in Current Affairs that we read on the show. So, oh, that's correct. So yeah. you, you should uh, check out the art for that. That was commissioned was so cool. Is that the one uh, where I'm still you... trying to get a print of that? How many spiders oh. was he? It's a lot of spiders. He was a bag of, what was it, 10 million? Uh, I, I've lost count by now because he <laughs> reproduces exponentially. So, it's so by like, now it's, it's like yeah, the COVID it's numbers. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's start with talking about what the New York Times has put out today. Uh, the best day to put out the news, Easter Sunday. That's when everyone is reading the New York Times. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. I, I, I've, I, I know, I remember when I was little, uh, my, my parents would put, the Sunday Times in the Easter basket with a bunch of candy. <laughs> that, that explains so much. Was there also like a monocle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, hat. Yeah, they, they, they'd be like, you know, uh, this is this is how you're able to talk to David Brooks, and we and we merge all the like all the cultures, right? Because didn't you write that one article about how like the real problem? With America is that like I brought a friend to a restaurant and they didn't know what they didn't know what ciabatta was or something. <laughs> like, like, That's Italian the real culture barrier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The poors don't know about the Italian meats. Good, I remember that. Yeah, I, I remember that. Uh, that's one of the many uh, fake friends, uh, as in imaginary friends, that um, David Brooks uh, constantly invents. It was them, the, them, and all the taxi drivers that uh, bring around. Uh, what's his face? Um, Thomas Friedman. Thomas Friedman, yeah. These are the only people who will talk to them, like cab drivers <laughs> and imaginary friends. Like and David Marianne Brooks, Williams though, need five stars. David Brooks lives his best life, and it makes me really angry because he does like one hour of work a week. He obviously doesn't read anything. He has like a young assistant wife that he's going to leave eventually for another younger assistant wife, and they just like buy like really ugly stuff online. 
like their their uh, wedding registry is like famously really really ugly, and that's their life. And I'm like a little jealous. I'm not even gonna lie. That sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's it's, it's like David Brooks and David Brooks and James Carville are locked in a heated interior design competition. For who, can make the, uh, who can make the most expensive, ugly house in the world? <laughs> Andrew Cuomo. Not so, we're talking about him yet, but he famously also hideous taste. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Hideous. Like, that Google is, it. It's gross. That is extremely unsurprising to me. It's um, just what rich people like. Rich people like ugly stuff. Because it, they don't have to be discriminatory in, like, what they pick out. They ex- of course, they're discriminatory around people. Mm-hmm. But with things, and just, like, let's just see how I can make the ugliest house uh, possible. And, like, they can just do that for fun. Well, they're things ta- anti-people. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. they're tastemakers. So, you know, they, they, <laughs> everything that they, they do is elegant uh, by uh, dictum. Is that the right word? <laughs> sure. <Yeah. laughs> David and I actually get the uh, fine publication Touch of Class, uh, which oh is God. basically a catalog of home decor that I'm 90% sure is how Carmela, I almost said Mantella, Carmela <laughs> Soprano, like decorated their entire house. It's just full of like hideous floral patterns and ugly lamps and rugs. So. Like, like, like gold. Uh, things that shouldn't be gold are gold, like toilet seat, like toilet seat covers that are yeah. like shiny golden stuff. It's it's yeah. awful. That rules. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why the hell not? So let's jump into this New York Times piece, which for some bizarre reason I was actually able to read. I guess I haven't already hit my quota of New York Times pieces, which usually happens around the second or third of the month. So I lucked out this this month. They should really make it so that you can have hate reads. They should bracket out hate reads <laughs> and, and actual news. Yeah, hate reads should be free. They yeah. should, don't paywall hate reads, okay? That is fundamentally undemocratic. You're also just ruining your brand, you know, like you can't like get that brand out there with hate reads. It's true. It's true. So this article is essentially, I I would say, the one of the first, if not the first major media outlets covering Tara Reid's allegations against Joe Biden of uh, sexual assault and rape. Right. Is there anybody else big who's covered it yet? Well, uh, it's like the, the Huffington Salon Post, covered Vox, it. Um, Salon, Salon yeah. uh, Amanda Marcote, but it was only to destroy, you know, to knock down all the allegations. <laughs> right. um, yeah. There have been a it, Jezebel covered it, but again, only to knock down the allegations. And this is a similar thing. And it's, it's definitely the most high profile. I think that Washington Post ran a small story about it. Nothing very in depth. A little while ago. But yeah. And that Jezebel piece, that was pretty fucked up. I can't remember if I saw you talking about this on Twitter, if it was Katie Halper, but like her, the, it was a very young writer. She doesn't seem to have like a lot of influence. I had never read anything mm-hmm. by her before. And she was really the main charge of that Jezebel piece was about jur- kind of journalistic malpractice in uh, the Katie Halper uh, podcast and then some other outlets that had covered it. Maybe she mentioned Current Affairs. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. But Meanwhile, like she had done her journalistic practices were also really horrendous and that she didn't make a significant effort to to get in touch with um, Katie Halper or Tara Reid or anybody else. So, And this is certainly not the worst thing about all this uh, reporting. But I've also noticed that they keep describing Katie Halper's show as a podcast when it is like a nationally syndicated radio show. Yeah. That also has like like previews of uh, as a podcast. Yeah, I show. also just com- committed that sin. So, yeah. sorry. That yeah. was... Oh, my God. Yeah. You're part of the problem. <laughs> a lot of these articles refer to Katie Halper as a comedian, too, which she's very right. funny and she has been a comedian, but that's like not what she was doing in this piece at all. And it is not like her primary thing anymore, even in the slightest. 
Like she's a real journalist and doing real journalism. And what was so gross about the Jezebel thing, and not just that they assigned this, like they sort of threw this young writer to the wolves and made her be the, the face of the story, but that they, they, they run unsubstantiated stories about rape allegations all the time. And they are, Jezebel's actually really careless to the point where they, some of the stuff they put out maybe does need to be better vetted. And for them to like stand up there and concern troll about Katie Halper, who did a good job and did reach out to other people. And, you know, it's a very good interview. She really lets Tara Reid talk and just like tell her story. And it's very compelling for the, for Jezebel of all people to be like, you need some more journalistic integrity. Like, shut the fuck up. Like, you don't even you you, you are a gossip rag. Sit down. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this New York Times piece does mm-hmm. essentially with a it does the way I read it, almost the exact same thing that the Jezebel piece does, or at least makes very similar allegations. But with that voice of the view from nowhere mm-hmm. uh, that it is so that it is so good at harnessing. So it's essentially running through all the same tropes that we've seen on Biden Twitter and on other sort of lesser known, but still more very centralist publications of laying out what they see as the criticisms or inconsistencies of her story. But of course, the way the Times does it is by drawing no real conclusions and pretending that it's a a super neutral overview. Yeah, that there's no pattern except for the seven women that came (laughs) forward and said that they felt extremely uncomfortable around her. Right. (laughs) Um, They actually deleted that line. Uh, Well, I, I saw that they added a part where they're like, save for... Previous allegations <laughs> about like uh, let's say like you know like inappropriate touching or like unwanted touching or something like that. So it's like so like what that's even worse because it's like well that does really seem to be a pattern. <laughs> There's no pattern except for this this yeah pattern. Over yeah, here. yeah yeah. There's no pattern except for this tre- this gigantic trend line that's <laughs> directly pointing to uh, an abusive uh, person with no boundaries. What's super ironic about their um, their objective voice that they're using is that they'll, they'll like put these different things in like, you know, they'll sort of state in their objective voice like there's no pattern. There's no pattern. Here's the pattern. Or they'll say like <laughs> her supervisors don't remember her at all. They don't remember this conversation. And then like the next paragraph is the interns that she used to work with totally remember her and remember that suddenly she like her her uh, she stopped supervising them. She was suddenly demoted and they never not never found out why, which is a detail that corroborates her story because she was de- she says she was demoted. Uh, be- yeah, she because, was frozen right. out and like put in like a, a windowless room or something. Right, right. Because this is after she made her her allegation, which is it's, it's a very common thing to happen. And it's so funny because they're, but they're in objective voice. They're not like, here's a thing. Here's another thing. These two things contradict each other. Should we get to the bottom of it? Eh! It's just like a very, like, gotta hear both sides. Like, one group of people who have a vested interest in saying a thing says a thing. Another group of people has no vested interest in saying something says something. I don't know. We will never know the truth. There's just no way to find this out. It's incredible. New York Times endorsed both the accusers and the accused. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then there's this part where uh, they say um, they, they mentioned that Tara Reid went and filed a, a report with the DC police, mm-hmm. and then they're like that's that's a sentence, and then the very next sentence is filing a false police report is a felony. Period. I know, that was fucking wild. That's a period. End of paragraph too. I mean, yeah. like, yeah, it's it's a it's so what they're doing is incredible because it's very badly edited. Because, like, the fact that they're having to scramble to, like, change the pattern sentence. Like, they, they, and there were, like, five people. They, they made four, five women reporters work on this. 
It's very, very bad. Oh, light that's why it's taken so long for oh, them yes. to work on it, because they've been working on it for weeks. Weeks right? and weeks so, and weeks. And they probably have, because they've been, like, changing and changing and editing and, you know, to try to make it gentler on Biden, et cetera, and then they still don't have it right. And then there's just, like, these obvious, like, it's so deliberate to be, like, end of sentence, end of paragraph, it's a felony, you know, to file a false rape report. Like, Ugh. you fucking assholes. I hope you burn in hell, quite literally. This is not, actually, I'm not being, like, spiritual or figurative. I'm being very literal. I think they should burn in hell. So this is, like, the New York Times version of the Alyssa Milano interview, where they're like, well, let us explain our silence on the Tara <sighs> Reid allegations. Yeah, that was a horrific, uh, I was never a huge Alyssa Milano fan, to be honest. Like, she's never been an idol of mine. You know, like, Although Charmed? I was very, I was very into Charmed as a middle schooler. Same. Uh, myself and my friends each had our own character. I got to be Shannon Doherty's character, which was pretty awesome. Nice. And then they, they sacked her because she's apparently a nightmare to work with. And nobody <laughs> in Hollywood wants to work with her. Um, but yeah, Alyssa Milano is like the the about face that she's done in light of this allegation is just so fucking disgusting like it's it's really uh it's kind of it's like made my stomach churn watching the way she's behaved during this it's really really blatant and it's really brazen and it's just it's 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 really disheartening in the midst of everything else that's going on to see these women who go up there and call themselves feminist amanda marcote like very much has like built her brand on being a feminist and, like, can't even fucking be bothered to take a rape allegation seriously. Like, it's just, it's disgusting. Hell. Yeah, Hell my, is too good for yeah, these people. She, yeah, she, she was bad. I remember her, my, my realization that she was really bad was in 2016, like so many other mm -hmm. uh, liberal-ish uh, writers. Like, 2016 was their big coming up party of, like, I don't actually give a shit about any of this stuff. And uh, is a, and Amanda Marcotte, Marcotte or Marcotte? I, I thought know. it was Marcotte. Yeah, whatever. Well, you have to be uh, a nicer person for me to care about how your name is pronounced. Is <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I remember. I think she was writing it at Slate at the time, and she yeah, and she just had like so much stuff about like, oh yeah, I don't actually care about these issues. I care about Hillary Clinton being elected. I also remember really liking the Wonkette for its voice for a while. It's like bitchy voice for a while, but now and now that's like total trash too. Yeah, there's a lot of, very clear. A lot of stuff has become very clear, which is maybe like the one saving grace of all the terrible undemocratic shit that's happened. Is like it's very, it's become very clear who is on the right and wrong side now. It's become very stark. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I've. A problem with my my problem with Amanda Marcotte's writing for many years has always been that she she wields the the weapon of identity politics really bluntly and always for super self serving purposes without really feeling compelled to do a critical analysis of any of her good very like white liberalism at at its, at its extreme. Um, yeah, she sucks. Yeah. <laughs> my and. and I really dislike that kind of white feminist a lot, white liberal feminist a lot. But if you're going to be that kind of person, I feel like you are obligated to at least stand up for other like white fem like white women professionals who have been like sexually assaulted. You know, like she did write things about um, uh, Christine Blasey Ford, who has arguably a less credible allegation since she didn't tell anybody at the time. You know, that's the kind of person that someone like Amanda Marcotte, Marcotte defends. Yeah. And like, it's, you know, again, she's uh, feminism should be a lot more than that. But if that is going to be your shtick, do your shtick. And when it comes to things that are politically inconvenient, she can't even be fucking bothered. 
Yeah, and I think that's what the point that I wanted to get at with her is that it's like wielding it as a weapon in the sense that like she only employs it when it's useful to her. Like there is, it's never the foundation of an mm-hmm. argument. It's always like the veneer that you paint over it to make to make yourself appear uh, both right and righteous, and it's really just like grotesque. So before we get into this really anymore, let's maybe do like a brief summary of Tara Reid's claims against Biden. Mm-hmm. She was a staffer for him in 92 and 93. And she says during that time, um, he basically like forced himself on her digitally, pushed her up against a wall, um, slid his fingers up her skirt and digitally penetrated her. And then said uh, when she was sort of taken aback and and freaked out, he said, you know what? I thought you liked Come on. I heard you liked me. And then he proceeded to say, uh, you're nothing to me. I think that's the broad brush, right? Is yeah. That- yeah. And, the, and then it was uh, it, it was in like a and one of the, the most disturb or I don't know, there's you, it's really a hard competition for the most disturbing thing about this. It's real smorgasbord. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, uh, what, one thing is that, uh, you know, it was done in, al- in an almost public place. Right. It was like in the corner of a lo- of a larger room. Like an alcove. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the. Um, the uh, incredulous reporting about how this couldn't possibly be true is like, oh, do you think like a guy with the kind of uh, um, profile of Joe Biden would do this out in public? And like, excuse me, he he gropes he gropes like prepubescent girls in front of cameras on camera. In the Senate. Yeah. Yeah. Like, of course he would do this. That's something that I feel like has gotten a little bit lost in, in this in covering this story and even just in how late people are talking about it. But there have been videos for years of Joe Biden very inappropriately touching like prepubescent girls in all kinds of settings, including on the Senate floor when they go in and they do their like family pictures yeah, in the yeah. Senate. Um, also, just he is a predator. Like there's no doubt about the fact that if you saw somebody touching your daughter like that, you would like I think a lot of fathers would probably deck you in the face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Deservingly so. You know, I always thought the, the, the thing this thing with Biden was that, like, he somehow in the way that, you know, he is obviously like a very corrupt politician and serves the ruling class, uh, but doesn't seem to obviously get anything out of it. It's almost like he's just, you know, like a team player for the oligarchs. Um, I, In it for the game. Yeah, I thought for some reason the the incredible uh, brazenness, which he just reaches out and strokes strangers' cheeks and just like his, his overwhelming uh, audacity with breaking people's personal space, like on camera and everything else, was in indicative of some type of like naive sense that this wasn't wrong i was like yeah he, maybe he's not like actually a predator until like all of these allegations came out and i started looking into it and then i was like oh fuck i wonder if like his breaking of all these social norms is an effort to sort of get ahead of any actual allegations that would come out and people you know giving him the benefit of the doubt he's like oh you know he, he can't stop touching people but it's always you know like in a nice little pinch of cheek kind of it's way just you know good old joe yeah yeah look yeah. It, it's just part of his fake irish heritage <laughs> <laughs> one of the, one of the defenses that i've heard of, of biden which is just is, is really gross is that one of the reasons people say that he couldn't have sexually assaulted tara reed is that he is uh, because his usual line stepping is just sniffing women's hair and you know uh, you know kissing them like un- unwanted you know, yeah it's like oof. well yeah, I guess that's sort of consensual hard to know <laughs> with the dementia um, 
people have said that, well, because he does, he always, in public, that we've seen, has always stopped at the, you know, at these, stopped at a very slight boundary crossing. That means that's what he always does. And and people don't understand this about uh, people who are abusers, that, like, it is very common, as you said, to throw out doubt, to, to try to muddy the waters. Or, and or, another way to look at it is, it's, it's a grooming behavior. Um, very often sexual harassers and, and Tara Reed's story starts with her being sexually harassed, um, in the office and, you know, and just in some like very slight, creepy ways and it just sort of, it escalates very often. That's a common pattern. It doesn't always, in fact, it doesn't often start with like somebody moving to full on sexual assault in this context. Usually it starts with these like sort of slight grooming behaviors that like, they seem like maybe they're okay, but they're kind of crossing the line. And you're like, are you the asshole for bringing it up? And the point of that is the abuser is trying to see what they can get away with. Mm. And they keep pushing the boundary, keep pushing the boundary. Yeah, and then that's and that is exactly how it operates. So it's very believable that somebody who has a history of being touchy with women in public also does full on assault in private. Like it is just it is the pattern. It has to do with not believing that other people have boundaries that are meaningful and just seeing what you can get away with. And I, I don't mean this to sound funny, though. I guess it's just like funny and just how disturbing it is that you kind of just have to laugh but like the way that his brain is deteriorating i i wonder if like we're just going to end up like he's going to not uh be able to uh monitor that sort of boundary crossing right he's got to start getting bad at that i mean the finger sucking thing was kind of that like that's yeah it's not a or, or, super weird thing to do in private if you're a couple but in public it's deeply fucking weird also the or or, yeah. or mouth kissing your granddaughter yeah, several uh, times yeah i saw at the time i saw all these people saying well culturally that's like normal in lots of other places yeah, he's a european, we're in other he's places a, he's we're european in this place style american vice president we're, <laughs> he's not he's not like from you know let's say in it's common in italy or something he's not from he's from here like it really that if if these are our cultural norms then those are the norms by which we judge his behavior and it's fucking weird also italian men famously not creepy <laughs> I think that's, that's I think why I went to Italy because I'm like, where would they do creepy shit like that? And that's where they do <laughs> probably Italy. Shit. And nobody does the sucking finger anywhere. There's no that's like an alien behavior. Only aliens from outer space to suck on fingers. Yeah, I mean, even if I were to like do that in the privacy of my own home with a partner, it would have to be goofy. Otherwise, I would be totally freaked out. And uh, like, that's just so. Oh, it was so uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, so this is the guy that can beat Trump. And so, yeah, now that Bernie's dropped out... Um, R.I.P. attention. Well, yeah, suspended. F in the chat. Uh, <laughs> I, so we're going to have more and more critical scrutiny of Biden from all sides. And it's now official. I think the last two polls that I saw put Biden and Trump either neck and neck or with Trump winning... I think most observed commentators on the left believe that Trump is going to absolutely trounce Biden in the general. And it's because all the Bernie bros are going to help. <laughs> well, yes. yes. I mean, that is our that is our primary mm-hmm. um, and is our primary goal mm-hmm. is to just reelect Trump. That's what we've been working on for years now. So I really don't see us getting all the way to the nom- nominating convention with Biden. I mean, there's just... I guess maybe at this point I should have like no uh, level of uh, disbelief in what the Dems are willing to do next. But let's say they decide to substitute him out with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Cuomo is looking like a pretty good option, right? President oh of the coronavirus. Uh, 
Dar- darling of the nation. He wears short sleeves. I, I kind of like the president of the coronavirus and the idea that like he is the president of the virus itself, because I think that's true. <laughs> I really it's it's amazing to me that people are saying that unironically as if it's a good thing when the only reasonable way to interpret that is that, yes, he has been president of this incredible public health crisis that has been so mismanaged. I'm yeah. losing my fucking mind about the Cuomo stuff like it's because, it's, it's, you know, I'm living here in Death City and I hear sirens all the time. I hope they don't pick up on this recording. Um, it, it's I can't go outside like and it's it's you know like yeah there's been mismanaged federal response but fucking Cuomo has not done a good job and and neither has De Blasio to be fair but a lot of this is is on Cuomo's head and but if you ask people outside the city they don't fucking know they don't know and they don't care and they're really they're kind of uh, I faced actually a lot of like so there's been a certain amount of hostility even after I wrote the article about Cuomo. From people who just don't want to fucking hear it, that he's actually, because they, they want something to cling to, they want something that makes them feel good. And he looked good on TV with his short sleeves, apparently. I think he's like one of the ugliest men alive. <laughs> yeah, so like, let's talk about this, ugh. let's talk about this article you wrote, because it was really good. So you were basically, uh, it's a, basically a clapback to all these fucking horny-ass uh, women writers who were saying they want to bone Cuomo, president of coronavirus, <laughs> I guess because of how capable he is. But also, he is, as you write, not an attractive person. No. Like, his brother, yeah, his brother's good-looking His brother can get it. Yeah, his brother can absolutely (laughs) get it any day of the week. Maybe after he recovers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, obviously. And I I, I really like this line that you had where it was like, no amount of manufactured sexual consent will ever get me to agree that Andrew Cuomo is either physically attractive or worthy of respect. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely true. It does feel like manufactured <laughs> sexual consent. It is like everybody's like, this guy's hot and you want to fuck him. And I'm like, what? I, what? <laughs> Remember when they did this with Adam Driver? Yes, they absolutely did it with Adam Driver. And he's an ug. He's an ugly man. Yeah, he's an ugo. It's it's like the they live glasses. Like you, <laughs> you, you put them on and they're like, like, fuck daddy governor. And you're like, you take them off and it's like, he looks so presidential. <laughs> <laughs> So how do you uh, come out on Nipplegate? Nipplegate. He does have nipple rings, obviously, and that's worse. <laughs> that's like, because then, you, then you're then you like forced to imagine. Like, he's obviously a terrible lay. <laughs> do people not have good radar for this? I like get very worried that people have never had good sex in their lives, and that's why they can't tell. Like, but you should be able to pretty much tell by looking at somebody if they're going to be a terrible lay or not. That's a terrible lay. Yeah. Cuomo, terrible There's lay. There's no way... Yeah, there's no way he's an attentive lover. No, I can no. guarantee that. He's very um, selfish. He pr- he seems like someone that yells "daddy" while in the middle of uh, having sex. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> <laughs> when I saw the nipple ring photo, I really wanted to share it to the group chat, but I felt like uh, exposing people to that without their prior consent. Like I felt like I'd have to say, "Hey guys, do you want to see photographic evidence that Andrew Cuomo very likely has nipple piercings?" But then that kind of ruins the delivery of it. Yeah. So I just kept it to myself. But um, yeah, it's it's absolutely. That's why, it's, that's why trigger warnings are destroying comedy. <laughs> <laughs> no joke, though. Like twenty fucking people sent me that nipple ring photo, and oh, I was no. starting to feel kind of traumatized it was because of like, ha, you wrote this article. You must want to see these nipple rings. I'm like, I don't think you understood the article. <laughs> I was being extremely sincere. So, um, so aside from him being not hot, 
uh, and not a vibe, I think we can safely say. Mm-hmm. You uh, you write a lot about kind of the brass tacks of why not only do you not want Andrew Cuomo as your lover or your president, yeah. but he's really not even a very good governor. And I'm wondering if you could kind of give us sort of a bird's eye view of Cuomo's time in office as governor of New York and some of his like shadier shit and like his fake progressivism. Mm-hmm. The big thing that you need to know about Cuomo, if you're not familiar with his, his history, is that is the IDC. Um the Independent Democratic Commission caucus. I can't remember what the C is, but basically they were a group of Democrats who, again, nominally Democrats, conservative Democrats who caucused with the Republicans. The Democrats technically had a majority in the state Senate, but they because this this caucus was happening effectively, they couldn't pass any progressive legislation. And that was always the excuse is like, oh, we just can't get it past the IDC. Um, and Cuomo has always disavowed any association with the IDC. He is fucking lying. And there's like tons of evidence that he's lying about. He had a lot to do with the IDC. They operated somewhat independently, but he like definitely was aware of them and, and was helping them and, and possibly helped to form them. Um, more like more than likely was just sort of working with them behind the scenes. Uh, he's very, very good. Cuomo's very good at pretending to be a lot more progressive than he actually is. He's very good at putting his name on bills and names on things that look really progressive, but he actually doesn't give like he just he very openly has contempt you can just look at stuff he said very openly has contempt for 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 progressives he has contempt for leftists he um he was challenged in 2014 uh sorry 2016 wait wait yeah sorry it was 2014 and 2018 those were his primary challenges um both by by progressive women activists each time and he sort of did what he could to pretend to run to the left of them and to pretend to be a feminist, which he's, he's absolutely not. He has a, he has a pretty terrible record on feminist issues, largely because the IDC, the IDC also is very, very bad about reproductive health and women's rights. You know, they, you know, they helped block a lot of progressive legislation around that. Um, Can can I jump in with mm -hmm. one quick thing about the IDC? Because I, it's such a bizarre organization or like political formation that I, I think it just like, People need to actually understand what the hell this is. Mm-hmm. It's a so the the Independent Democratic Conference. There we it's go. A conference. There we go. Yeah. Um. It 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 is literally people that run on the Democratic ticket that just vote with Republicans. Yeah. Like they are just they are Republicans. Uh. All in all, but like the the letter next to their name on C-SPAN. Like that's yeah. that is literally it. The old and switcheroo. They, uh, yeah, <laughs> and there and and as you write in, in your in your piece, Lida, their chief strategist is the one and only yes. Liz Smith. Smith, uh, Buttigieg's was it a policy advisor or campaign director? I, think I don't remember. one of I think chief advisor was was usually the title. This is the Nigerian guy. Yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, um, so one that tells you who Pete Buttigieg is, but mm-hmm. it, it's also like, yeah, the, this the, this which is the IDC is a very. I feel like if I had to pick a state where something like this would exist, it only in New York, baby, the five boroughs. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that's a really that's a really key part of the story of Cuomo and the New York State Legislature is that people from outside of New York tend to think of New York as a very solidly blue liberal state, but um, thanks to those of us here in upstate, you have a lot of like 
you know, Democrats and Republicans in chiefs in sheep's clothing where you can run as a Democrat and guaranteed to get elected and be as Republican as you want. And that's never really going to hurt you Mm -hmm. because we have such a high number of conservative voters up here. Yeah. And you'll also see, like, because we have this awesome thing called fusion voting, that you will find someone on the Democratic and Republican line. And green. Like Like they're on both. Yeah. And green. Yeah, yeah, as we've covered before. And then there's also the Women's Equality Party. Oh, my like, God. Do you want to tell us what the, yeah, about the Women's about Equality the Party? This is fascinating. So the Women's Equality Party, doesn't that sound so good, you guys? Sounds Don't dope. It's great. Sign me up. In on the Women's Equality So Three great things, women, <laughs> equality, and parties. Who doesn't love all of those things? So there is a, in, in New York, there's also a very powerful group called the Working Families Party. Very similar Who? name, very similar acronym, the Working Families Party. Oh, I'd never um, heard of them. um very and and like obviously like yeah women's equality party is like they made they designed the name not only to do what i'm gonna explain that they did but also like to be confused with the the working families party um the women's equality party was begun by cuomo himself in 2014 when he was running against separate teach out um and so so this is supposedly a group that exists to elect women though of course they helped elect Cuomo twice. And in general, they, while they sometimes support women candidates, a lot of the time they'll support more conservative male candidates, including male candidates who are anti-choice, against progressive female candidates. So wow. that, they, and, oh my God, they, they are so bad. And, and he fucking, he fucking drove around, fucking Cuomo drove around in a fucking bus with a big old pink stripe. He's like, he's like women's equality bus in 2014 to like, Get out the vote and make it look like, oh, you know, it's okay to vote for this man because this man is a a feminist. Uh, And it's, you know, he finally New York State codified Roe v. Wade into law. And he like there was this big ceremony, um, you know, he he signed the thing and he he wore pink tie and um, he gave an award to the the lawyer who um, actually the lawyer who who uh, argued Roe v. Wade against the Supreme Court in in the, in the 70s. And she she was very funny. She was like, yeah, the depth of his commitment to this is pretty much summed up by the color of his tie. Like, this is just this is how much he fucking cares. It's like it, it's just it's such an obvious showmanship. It's mm-hmm. almost straight up like something out of Veep. But <laughs> but there's like no there's like no laugh track. Like nobody's it, like it's not written like a comedy and no, nobody seems to get it. Like this is this is made up shit that he does for attention. He's not a feminist at all, even a little bit. And it's painfully obvious even if you look at it for a second but a lot of people are just willing to be like oh yeah yeah women's equality party sounds great you know this bus with a pink stripe he's got to be legit it makes me fucking livid people livid in 2017 i think it was uh he gave some talk where he was wearing a pink sash or something and 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 uh he was giving this speech that had this um cadence to it where he would just list all these different things that he was and that and then it would the crescendo was like and and i'm a new york like we're all new yorkers and like and the best part though was there's one part where he very clearly with lots of editable space on either side (laughs) yells i am a child who needs an education and i have that saved on my phone (laughs) i just keep it i just keep it all the time (laughs) as i keep it with me we really need to i just listen to it by myself sometimes (laughs) that's beautiful i want that as like my text alert (laughs) i'll send it to you 
So Cuomo also st- also stole gay valor. Oh my god! Right? There's actually something I didn't put in the piece because I didn't know about it at the time, and I just found out about it. And I'm really horrified. So the thing that's in the piece is that um, so New York passed a, a gay marriage bill, and the bill had been like you know proposed for like over a decade, um, you know, over and over again, and, and shot down because of the the IDC and things. And and this bill had been proposed by a, an openly gay congressman, and when it finally came time for Cuomo to say, okay, like we're gonna we're gonna pass this. He, his chief of staff called this gay congressman and said, you need to, like, you know, let Cuomo be on the bill. You need to let him sponsor it instead of you. And, and the guy was like, no, this is, like, my life's work. And then the, the, the fucking chief of staff threatened him, like, threatened his future career. And, like... The, so the congressman, congressman was Danny O'Donnell. And the quote that you have was, you'll never work again. I'll make it my mission in life to destroy you. Yeah. Yeah, not not fucking around, and like and very the, like mobs, like bullshit mobster. Yeah, like yeah. It, I'm the boss, just so, baby. Cuomo's, he's like a store brand mobster. I mean, just and that's very like New York Democratic politics is like store brand mobster. Same like, with uh, New York Republican politics. It's New York yeah. politics, baby. Yeah, that's true. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess, I guess those are the two families who are really one family. Um, yeah, and, and it's. You know, the the chief of staff went on to have like a powerful role as a as a lobbyist, you know, like this, this you know, this guy actually, you know, was really in a good position to threaten um, Daniel O'Donnell. So Daniel O'Donnell let the, let the bill go. And Cuomo got his big shiny moment. He got to, you know, he got to say, hey, I'm here for gay rights, et cetera. And it's it's all fucking bullshit. He's just it was a convenient photo op. He doesn't give a shit about gay people. Did he wear uh, a the- rainbow b- boa during the uh, <laughs> pride parade? That if you threw a rainbow boa on Andrew Cuomo, he would shout a homophobic slur. <laughs> <laughs> they, they used to call well, us uh, the... WAP F words. <laughs> oh, yeah, he said the N word on local public radio. Yeah, yeah, he, up by um, us. Yeah. He, he was uh, he was defending himself by saying that he was quoting something else. Yeah. But yeah, he just, he well, just he, he, said he, it on, he, uh, on Alan Chartok. He, he was talking yeah. saying that. Uh, uh, he was essentially comparing the plight of Italian Americans to the plight of Black Americans. Um, saying, oh yeah, it was over the Fredo comment. <laughs> it was over the Fredo. Com- it was over somebody calling him Fredo. Yes, uh, he said they used the to call us so in- WAP N words, but then he actually yes, said Jesus. the N word. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, he did. Yeah, the reason, the biggest reason he can't run against Trump is Trump will just call him Fredo. And he'll fucking lose it. He'll just fucking lose his shit every every minute because he has he has no temper control whatsoever. It, very thin skinned. Yeah. Very, uh, very thin skinned. Anyway, the thing that I I didn't put in my article because I, I didn't know about mm. it at the time, which, which is horrific. So so Andrew Cuomo used to work for his father Mario. Mario was the governor, um, and um, governor of New York before him. And in one of Mario's campaigns, he's running against Ed Koch. Ed Koch. I don't know how you say it. This, so this is the, the flyers that they the that uh, Mario Cuomo's campaign put out that were just, you know designed or directed at least by Andrew Cuomo, and they said vote for Cuomo, not the homo. Ooh, yeah, Jesus Christ, yeah, and this was like not Yikes. really that long ago, yeah. So that tells you a lot about him and his new his brand new commitment to gay rights when it was good for a photo op. I mean, that's kind of like tale as old as time for the Dems, right? Be yeah. on the wrong side of history until it is politically useful or even necessary to be on the right side. And that's not, you know, that Obama and Obama pulled the same thing. I mean, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and uh, Clinton when she was running for Clinton, Senate yeah. in what was that oh three or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, all of them say like like no no gay marriage, no anything. Yeah, it, all except for Bernard Bernard uh, Sanders, the only one who's been consistently on the right side of history, which is why Bless. he was never going to be allowed to be president. So, <laughs> but then you you have in this moment where you know uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is overseeing the greatest and worst uh, worst rather. Uh, outbreak of covid in the entire world and what does he do he cuts medicaid oh my God. yeah so it's like you know sometimes just the aesthetic is enough to uh you know wrap yourself in and and even when you're doing the exact opposite of what uh the moment in history demands of you that's and that's one of the things that's so shocking about this this is the worst outbreak in the world it's and 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 yes there's a little bit of which you know, like fine new york is a very large city and it's a very po- population dense city but we are we're having a terrible outbreak and it's he cut medicaid he cut uh he he cut hospitals earlier like this is his second round of medicaid cut medicaid cuts they uh they ran a simulation a couple of years ago of what would happen if there was like a big flu like pandemic and what they found was they wouldn't have enough ventilators and he didn't order enough ventilators. And so now he's up there screaming the federal government isn't giving them ventilators, which is true, but they didn't order enough in the first place. And on top of that, they should have shut, shut the city down weeks ago. It should have been at least two weeks before they did it. That's why the outbreak is so bad. It's not just that it's, it's a dense city. It's not just because of the ventilator. It's because they, he and de Blasio fucking dragged their feet rather than like we should have gone into quarantine really some time ago and and it it just had this chance for this enormous community spread and they knew they knew there were all there's already a huge spread one of the earliest cases was it was a lawyer from westchester and it spread very badly in new rochelle where he was from but also he had a lot of contacts with people in manhattan once it was clear that that had happened that this guy had been around in manhattan and had to contact people shut it all down like it's fucking deadly they, they just didn't they fucking didn't because they're garbage cuomo is a garbage person and there's pretty clear comparisons between what Cuomo and Gavin Newsom in California did. And they're like, you can see that because Newsom uh, made a bunch of uh, um, clothes orders, like, like at least, just like, and we're not talking about like a very long time, like a week mm-hmm. earlier. It was like a week or two weeks earlier. It massively changes everything. It was like, like getting this early, it makes all the difference. And they just and he just absolutely bungled it. Yeah, there's a uh, uh, old bungler. Yeah, <laughs> there's um, I, I was in preparation for this. I was looking at um an update from a uh, city and state ny dot com, and uh, they were talking about how to, to get really specific on what Cuomo uh, is taking out or how he's uh, destroying Medicaid. He said, uh, Andrew Cuomo said that the measures were necessary to pass a balanced budget, and he lambasted the federal coronavirus relief bill. Mm. Okay, the, the the federal government's bill that prevents states from changing their Medicaid programs during the COVID nineteen emergency if they accept federal Medicaid money included in the stimulus package. Cuomo even threatened to forego the six point seven billion dollars in emergency Medicaid <sighs> dollars from the federal government in order to implement the changes to the state program, arguing that the recurring savings were more important than a one-time influx of cash. Wow. As if we didn't need a one-time influx of cash literally right the fuck now. If there was ever a time for a one... I'm losing it. I'm losing it, you guys. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Among the most contentious of the Medicaid redesign team. That's what he called it. The Medicaid redesign team. 
Proposals that made it into the budget was $400 million in reduced payments to hospitals, including $138 million to cuts for New York City's public hospital system, Health Plus Hospitals. Do you? Th- yeah, and let's. It's it's also just a good time to remind you that like deficit spending is not bad or wrong. It's very normal and not really, especially in times of crisis. Like the idea that the priority right now should be mm-hmm. balancing New York's budget is the dumbest fucking thing ever. It's psycho. Yeah. It's absolutely sociopathic. Yeah, it, it's murderous. Um, and uh, do, do you guys think that there's a calculated uh, miscommunication between the uh, mayor of New York and uh, the governor about the school closing? Like they, you know, they're... Uh, de Blasio uh, basically put out a thing saying schools are closed for the rest of the the school year. Uh, no more public schools in New York City. And then Governor Cuomo was like, "Wait a second, you don't have the authority to uh, to do that just yet." Oh, they they they're having just a dick measuring contest for sure. They, they they do it constantly. That's like one of the things that's so annoying, especially when people talk about how presidential and like mature and responsible Cuomo is. Like all he fucking does is get a dick measuring contest with Bill De Blasio. And, like, who has the authority to do what? That's, like, part of why the shutdown was delayed is because it was, yeah, it was, like, you know, who had the authority to close the schools in the first place with the authority to close down gyms? And they had had to fight it out rather than, like, take care of people. They are both trash. With you. And didn't they... uh didn't they have a uh, a fracas uh, uh, about um, schools prior to the... The um the outbreak that you mentioned in your article. Oh yeah, so that's um oh so so the one point of ideological consistency that Andrew Cuomo does have, other than just like mugging for the cameras, is that he he loves rich people. He's like very he's very into them. He thinks that they deserve everything and should not be taxed. Um, the one one of the only good things De Blasio has done is he passed a a tax um to fund the tax on wealthy people that funds uh universal pre-k for everybody for for everyone in new york city um but of course it's a tax on rich people and cuomo was very 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 upset about it and they that was one of the the early falling outs that they had um there's some dispute over like what was like the triggering event that that led to their big fallout i mean they're it's just to some degree it's just personality they're both assholes but yeah it, it it's I think, like, when it comes to, like, why, why, why do we cut Medicaid in the middle of a pandemic? Well, it's better for rich people to cut Medicaid, obviously. Like, that's, and that's ultimately what is always going to be Cuomo's priority. And it's another example of Democrats using, like, budgets as an excuse to cut spending in ways that benefit the ruling class. Like, mm-hmm. it's just kind of, that's always their go-to, you know, the, the, the bludgeoning tool that they can use to justify any kind of regressive policy that hurts the poor is, well, we got to keep that budget balanced. You know, that's really that's an important imaginary thing we got to do. I and they'll blame the Republicans. They'll say, oh, it's the Republicans. Oh, it's these oh, it's these conservative Democrats that won't vote for it. And it's they yeah. won't push for anything. I remember Cuomo was uh, the only governor that I am aware of that has uh, actually bent the knee to um, uh, pressure, lobbying pressure from the environmental groups as it relates to uh, banning fracking. But then there was, um, you know, another push uh, for them to uh, stop fossil fuel infrastructure for government buildings. And that's where uh, he he broke from that uh, trend and was like, no. We're going to use natural gas to keep like capital going or going to, you know, do everything else. But I do remember that he did ban fracking and that that was like a, a considered one of the only uh, wins for the environmental movement uh, at the time. 
he will do some progressive stuff if you know if, if the timing works if if there's enough pressure probably um you know i certainly he certainly wouldn't have passed gay marriage if it weren't a thing that wealthy new york donors were okay was okay with and also just that it was it was good timing for it and and also activist pressure but i think it's we have to be very careful to think that he's a guy who as president if he were to be president which he wouldn't be if he were to be at all swayed by activist pressure, because he he wouldn't like it. again only if it were convenient, only if rich people were on board. There's there's just these hard limits to what he will be willing to do. And we've only had one bachelor president before, so yeah. that I don't feel like that that doesn't work in his favor either. Who who is the bachelor president? Buchanan. Uh, ah. Yeah, he's probably gay. Pretty pretty reasonable guess for the time period. Oh, I think Lincoln was our first gay president, but he wasn't a bachelor, so. That's yeah. true. He, he had a beard? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think David did want to talk about the uh, Tappan Zee Bridge. Yes. And oh, yeah, I, I, just because I, 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 lo- I love talking about civil engineering. I know, yeah, you have and, to. Um, and we also, Scratch in a previous episode... Uh, Lida, do you know about um, license plate gate? <laughs> plate gate. Yeah, it's it's ringing a bell, but I don't remember what was the deal again. Okay, so uh, um, uh, on, on the last episode of Iron Weeds, no, um, like t- yeah, thir- <laughs> twenty 30, episodes yeah, ago, yeah, twenty episodes ago, um, uh, all of a sudden Cuomo said that um, we need to replace every single license plate in the state. Uh, because of some upgrade to uh, like Easy Pass or something, they chose the wrong stuff. paint. Yeah, yeah. the The yellow paint was having was giving the cameras a hard time, and so we have to change all the license plates. But but guess what, New Yorkers, democracy, you get to choose what's on the new license plate. And there were five options. Four of the five options were like like not a lie, no exaggeration, like uh, um, New York clip art. It was just like. Oh my God. Like a bad picture of of the uh, of of the um... three had the Statue of Liberty yeah. on them. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> right, and then, but then there's one that looks like anyone put any effort into, and it was the Mario Cuomo Tappan Zee Bridge <laughs> uh, uh, license plate, and everyone was going to have to pay like twenty five bucks or something to every single person to get a new license plate, and um and then and then when the results came back in for the the license plate it it was like a three-way tie between all of the, the all the um statue of liberty ones or something <laughs> it was it was like just like tap and z came in last well, or something well there was one that integrated uh city and upstate images like one that i think it had niagara falls on it yeah, yeah. um that is the one that won okay, yeah. the majority the other three the statue of liberty ones were generally tied but the, the mario cuomo bridge <laughs> license plate was way at the bottom, like it dis- like uh, embarrassingly low votes, <laughs> and so then he scrapped the entire idea of replacing all the yeah, license plates. Y'all- yeah, all, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, oh we god. don't need new license plates. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm googling correctly. this now. This is incredible. Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> they, you're, you're not kidding about it. just like straight up clip nope. art. Like the, the <laughs> like Lady Liberty's torch is like the laziest clip art I've ever seen in my life. And then the bridge is like it has these like smooth lines. It's like gradations. It you know it's it's really gorgeous. Oh. So if it, so we covered that, but maybe we we probably didn't go deep into the bridge itself, which is its own like Cuomo tastic 
uh, experience. <laughs> do you want to go over that? Yeah, and you'll probably know more than I do because I just you know research what I research, but I'm not a I'm not a an infrastructure expert. Um, so the story of the bridge is that the Tappan Zee Bridge was old; it was falling apart. It had been falling apart for years, um, and you know they wanted to replace it, so they're building a new bridge. And the new bridge, Cuomo wanted to name it the Mario M. Cuomo Bridge after his father. Uh, people basically rioted, and not literally, but they were very opposed to this because um, they're used to it being the Tappan Zee. So fine, there was compromise. It's the Mario M. Cuomo Tappan Zee Bridge, which is a mouthful, <laughs> and nobody fucking says it. Everybody just says the Tappan Zee, or they might say the new Tappan Zee. So this bridge was supposed to be finished. This was in 2018, and it was just before the primary against Cynthia Nixon, Cuomo's primary against Cynthia Nixon. The bridge was late. It was super late. And like Cuomo did a lot of fucking shady stuff to like make this bridge happen before the election, before the primary against Cynthia Nixon. Like they, the state paid extra to make it happen to, you know, to, to, to move it along. There were some like faulty bolts that just like fucking broke. And then they were like, oh, I, you know, then they're just like trying to cover up like the, the faulty bolts and the, the fact that this happened. So, so they rushed it and rushed it. And finally, it was ready like a week before the primary. It was this big, fancy ribbon cutting ceremony. It was all very dramatic. And then they had to shut it down. Well, they, well, they actually didn't have to shut it down. It was the other bridge. The problem was the, they, they're built kind of close together. I don't actually really know. I don't go upstate very often. So I don't like, know actually the, the, quite the layout of how close they were. But close enough that there was actually concern that the old bridge, part of the span of the old bridge, was going to fall onto the new bridge. They, they are shit. like extremely close. Okay, they're like close. They're like like a roadbed, a barely yeah. like one roadbed could fit in between them. They're ex- because yeah. they they're trying to get the same approach on both sides of land. Gotcha. So so it's like yeah, they're right next to each other. Yeah, I mean, I just like when I have to go upstate, I follow like Google Maps and it says go over the bridge. I'm like, okay, this seems kind of like where the bridge used to be. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't. Uh, but yeah, so they had to blow up the old bridge. And they tried to turn it to like kind of like a dramatic, like, hey, isn't this fun? It's like a very safe thing to do to blow up a bridge. And it's like, like the better way, you know, more environmentally sound way would have been to dismantle it piece by piece. But it was like too dangerous. So they just, they fucking blew up the old bridge. Wow. And <laughs> damn them all to hell. And just let it drop? Yeah, just in, in the water, I guess. Like, I, you can, there's a video of it blowing up if you, if you want to see. Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess they probably retrieved some of the pieces. I have no idea. Usually they would. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think they they probably would, but I, I I because you can see it really well on Amtrak, which is how I I've always seen it uh, to to unite our Joe Biden uh, Andrew <laughs> Cuomo conversation. But um and yeah, they're 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 really really close to each other, and um they were disassembling the old bridge for a mm-hmm. while, like while they were still building the new one. Uh, but yeah, there's the like the middle section, the actual part that was that suspended, uh, was not taken down. And, uh, yeah, I guess they, yeah, they I, I didn't even know they blew it up until you, wow. uh, until I read your article. Yo, yeah. it's, it's a fun video. I'm getting flashbacks to building seven watching this video. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, what's, uh, what, uh, I, I, I'm, what this also makes me think of with, um, the bridge is also like all these like tiny infrastructure projects, relatively mm-hmm. tiny infrastructure projects that Cuomo oversees that he like turns into like, we just like built the empire state building or something. Yeah. You know, like it's, they're just like these enormous ribbon cutting ceremonies. Like there was the, um, uh, the, the extension of the seven to Hudson Yards. <laughs> yeah. 
right? Both him and de Blasio fought over like the like the like the achievement of spending like what like four billion dollars on like a couple hundred extra feet of yeah, it's one stop. Track. It's, yeah, one it's one stop. stop. It's the worst neighborhood in the city, which like you could walk to. It's it, it's it, yeah, it's bad. Yeah, and then the uh, the other, and I, I don't even remember if it's um, completely accessible. Like, no, there is there is a. Mm-hmm. a uh, an elevator, but yeah. Uh, and then the other thing is the, um, r- up here, they made a new, um, dedicated exit to this tiny municipal airport that we have. I mean, it's an international airport, but it's like, it's pretty tiny. It's very tiny. Yeah. And, um, uh, and the traffic did suck around it, but they built like a, like this huge overbuilt, oh like, uh, um, flyover to get to the airport. And, uh, he drove, he, he was like, Qu- Cuomo's also like a car guy. Mm. In addition to having really terrible God, he's the worst. interior design <laughs> sense and a nipple ring, he also like has FDR's old car. He like, does? literally? Yeah. What? Yeah. And he drove it over the, oh <laughs> it, on his new overpass. He like they shut down traffic all over 87. Like 87 was backed up for miles so that he could drive FDR's old car what, over what, his new interchange. Was he on Instagram live and wrap around sunglasses the at the time? <laughs> <laughs> this is why they did, I'm like they did stream it live. They did. This it's like Veep, only like people don't get that it's a comedy. Like they just like all of this stuff happens, but there's like weirdly no audience watching it happen. <laughs> yeah. It's it's and, bizarre. Like, and the the exit to get to the airport, it was everything was perfectly fine. Like this was not a necessary construction project. Um it does make it slightly more convenient. It probably saves you about forty five seconds if you're trying to get to the airport. <laughs> But it is so obnoxiously overbuilt. It is the kind of off-ramp you would expect to see at, like, Tampa International Airport. It reminds me of the off-ramps at Tampa International Airport, which I've flown out of many times. It's just, it's, it's, it's... It it, it happened because, of course, uh, people who fly regionally to Albany to lobby the state government probably mm-hmm. complain about how hard it is to get out of the airport. Like, it's clearly something made for people who uh, are close to Andrew Cuomo or for Andrew Cuomo personally. Like, that is the only reason this uh, 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 exit happened. And just to bring it back to, like, how this is actually, like, not just anno- an annoying thing that Cuomo does, but is also, like, actively dangerous, is that you wrote in your piece, Lida, that... Um, during this pandemic, essential businesses in New York, including not just grocery stores, but also construction workers building luxury apartments. Yeah. Which frequently go unsold anyway. So, like, there's he's having people still build things that are completely unnecessary right now. And construction sites, you're often shoulder to shoulder with people uh, like that's. Mm-hmm. That's bad. And luxury hotels in New York City are essentially tax havens. Like, that is their primary purpose, mm-hmm. is for rich people to buy them, not occupy them, and keep an investment in oh, yeah. in escrow so that you don't have to pay taxes on it. Yeah, hotels and condos. Yeah. Hotels yeah. and condos. And a lot of foreign yeah. national yeah, money, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've been building all these weird skinny towers in Midtown. Ah, those are so They're ugly. They're so ugly. They're weird. They, they don't look very stable. Like, I really feel like the first serious hurricane like the next sandy is really gonna do something to them um they're they're super skinny and then it's like it's just like one apartment one like big luxury apartment per floor and then they're they're empty they're virtually empty they're more than half empty and this is the shit that they're they're making construction workers you know probably live in like these hard-hit neighborhoods 
They, they can get up and go to work on the subway and they're just, you know, spreading the corona to each other for nothing. And it's, yeah. it's awful. There's a really good report in Jacobit about it if you want to know more about this one. And then you see also um, the hotels that aren't getting bookings because New York City is the worst breakout of COVID, you know, on the planet mm-hmm. are uh, now lighting up uh, unoccupied rooms, making pixel art for of uh, <sighs> hearts to, you know, uh, stand in solidarity with, uh, uh, I don't know, hospital workers or some shit. It's fucking insane because these people are going to be, you know, when eventually they're tried and publicly executed after all this <laughs> parody satire, um, it, they will be saying well you know you, you can't expropriate my shit i was i i was holding on to thousands of desperately needed units that homeless people could be sheltering and placing uh sheltering in place in um and you know i use them to virtue signal so you know i'm one of the good guys i mean that that what is a mess. that's like a very that is like the cuomo mindset and like that's the attitude that he has and that's like the thing you 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 you, you can see why he still remains relatively popular because there's enough people in this town who and and upstate too who are you know who are fine with the virtue signaling who think it's great who think that's the only thing that should be done and can be done and just don't want to think at all about the other things that that we could absolutely we could this state is rich as fuck we could fix a lot of problems yeah we don't need to cut medicaid at all no we don't need to cut medicaid we could do we should expand medicaid projects we, yeah, we could do tons of things here. Wait, wait, wait. But, only only to 60. To... Only to 60. <laughs> and New York, because it has the city, is uniquely positioned to raise taxes mm-hmm. on its wealthiest residents because they can't just, like, not be in the city. That is the center of finance for the entire country, for uh, much of the global economy. Like, you have a captive audience with a lot of money. Fucking tax them. One of Cuomo's arguments is if you raise taxes, rich people leave. And there is some evidence that rich people have left New York. But the infrastructure in the city sucks. Like, the subway's a mess. You know, the, the city is gross in a lot of ways still. And, yeah. like, and there, you know, a lot of, like, rich people who leave, they'll, they'll complain, like, well, I don't like seeing homeless people everywhere. It's like, well, like, we could. <laughs> so that's the thing. Like, taxes are high here. Like, and it is why people leave. But it's also they're not seeing any use of their tax dollars in any meaningful way. They're not seeing infrastructure improvements. And they, like, yes, their reaction to homeless people is, is you gross rather than, like, we should be helping people. But regardless, it's not their money isn't going anywhere. So, like, yeah, I do see why rich people would leave. If you actually use the money reasonably. Yeah, you could it, tax them probably way more and they'd stay. And meanwhile, we have some of the most regressive uh, taxing in the, in the state with like one of the highest uh, sales taxes, for example. Mm-hmm. The vampire state, as they as they call it. Yeah, it's a big it's a big mess. These are these are all like extremely fixable problems. Cuomo is not the fucking guy to fix anything. And yeah, like you said, capital flight is is an act could be a problem. Mm-hmm. We don't even know because we've never even tried. It has but, kind uh, of been a problem already. But like, again, yeah. why is it a problem? Right. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, like capital flight and like raise my taxes and I get I get the hell out of here kind mm-hmm. of thing. But then like uh, 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 there is something to be said, though, about like there's there's only one New York City. Yeah. <laughs> like you're right. And you're like you can't uh, pick up and leave that quickly or that uh, completely as if you're like a, a multi-billion dollar company or something yeah. like that. One of the things that really, really makes me angry, like especially angry, is that like like this Cuomo piece that I wrote. It was a fair bit of research, but it was just researching, like, other people's reporting. It wasn't really that hard to put it together. It took time. And then, like, the work that Nathan did, like, going through Tara Reid's claims and, you know, looking at the evidence, like, again, time-consuming, but, like, not difficult. 
And like current affairs is like no money. It's like it's like fucking bullshit that he and I can do this, this you know, actual journalism that like other outlets are not willing to do. Uh, it's it's the things that we could do if we had fact checkers, if we had like, you know, instead of having to do it all ourselves, like we had any resources. It's amazing. So like, I don't want to like, so in the fucking New York Times puts five fucking people on it to, to, to rebut Tara Reid. And then they put like 10 people on like how great Cuomo is and wasn't his presser great. And they're new to no, no fucking work at all. It's just, it's, it's staggering. And it's, it's just really, really, really fucking frustrating. So like, and this is why, this is why at the end of the day, people believe this shit that isn't true. It's because they're told shit that isn't true by, by these organizations who have the resources to tell the truth and choose not to. This has been a trend in journalism for well over 100 years that the best investigative journalism is done by small underfunded outlets that uh, are just often operating on shoestring budgets with poorly paid reporters and investigators. And meanwhile, very well-funded national outlets are able to oftentimes just crib directly from smaller journalistic outlets or, as in this case, do what is like a laughable level of fact checking and Mm -hmm. like, you know, actually using any kind of integrity on reporting on a story. And I think there was at some point maybe some optimism that digital journalism would help correct for that because it could be more grassroots funded and stuff. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, obviously, Lydia, you're you're probably better positioned to speak about than any of us. But I I I feel like that hasn't really that dream has not been. uh, uh, realized to the extent that it probably should be. So, um, yeah, people should definitely read and support current affairs if you're able. It's a really great outlet. Um, and it really, honestly, it kind of sucks, but I think the only way that we're going to build up a decent, more resilient, more, um, for class conscious, for lack of a better word, like investigative journalism apparatus is just by all of us giving money to those publications. That's the only movement forward at this point. Yeah, it's it's and it sucks because people, especially now, have like less and less money. Well, we're um, about all about to get twelve hundred. So woo, yes, you know. send your twelve hundred on on us and Jacobin and Baffler. But yeah, because the I mean the other sources of income are uh, for you know for journalism are advertising dollars. Advertising is in a weird place. And, you know, taking ad money really changes what you can do. And that's venture capital. And, like, we all saw what happened to Deadspin. Like, yeah. It's, yeah. it's brutal. And, 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 and even uh, uh, that's, uh, venture capital won't save you because look at Vox. They had to go ask people for, yeah. for oh, donations. Fuck. Will someone please fuck think of the Vox? <laughs> These like, poor, you know. I don't know if you guys have seen. There's a, there's a little video of this, like, little girl who uh, she, she's holding a Barbie and she throws the Barbie jails, give me your fucking money. And like, <laughs> I can't, every time that Vox, has, like I've seen them begging for money, I've like, give me your fucking money, Vox. Oh, I'm the fuck on. Yeah, and when Amy Goodman put it, um, you know, that we, we, we need a media that will be the fourth estate and not for the state. And yeah. I think about that every time, you know, people refer to these papers of record or, you know, like the Washington Post owned by the, the richest human on earth and mm-hmm. Jennifer Rubin on Twitter, you know, just t- trying to lecture Democrats on how to be better Republicans. Um, it's pretty disgusting. And but I, I very much appreciate the work that you're doing and uh, many, many like you. And uh, yeah, like it, it, so does current affairs have a, a subscription model? How, how does one... Uh, help out 
Um, yes, we have a couple ways to do it. There's a subscription model. I think it's 40 for just the digital edition and then 60 for the print and the digital. And the print is really great. And it's especially if you're stuck at home right now, it'll be a really nice thing to get in the mail because it's very pretty. It is uh, a beautiful publication. We, like, we really try hard to be pretty. Maybe that's and, shallow. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we can have pretty things. Yeah. We yeah. deserve them. Presentation um, is everything. Is there a Patreon also? Yes, there's a podcast and there's a Patreon associated with that. And you could also get a, you can you know, double up, get a podcast, podcast subscription and a magazine. It's a whole, it's a whole thing. If you go to, I think it's patreon.com slash current affairs, something like that. Yeah, and we'll yeah. post all of that info in the show notes to this episode. Yeah. And do you have any, uh, um, uh, fiction coming out that you want to point people to? Um, I have a, a short story in the new issue of Protean that just came out. Oh, it's um, oh, great. So, nice. Yeah. Go go uh, get that from your local. I don't think they're on newsstands. We're not either. Um, Protean's also another good one, that it, another good small publication worth subscribing to. Um, yeah, great. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's the most recent thing. Great. Well, Lida, thank you so much for you know giving us so much of your time today and for joining us. It was a really great conversation. I can't recommend enough. People seek out your work. Um, we'll post a couple of choice pieces in the show notes. And also a great Twitter follower. or Twitter <laughs> Solid also, follow. Also a great Twitter follow. Yeah. I'm like really losing my mind lately. So like, just, I know like, it's fair warning. <laughs> you're a bright, you're a bright spot on my Twitter timeline. Like, I'm really like like my brain. I think is like just like deliquifying into like a certain kind of madness as I'm like enter my fifth week of being trapped indoors. So well, one of the, well, if if we're gonna pick a couple of uh, light of gold uh, best of, it's gonna be that <laughs> the the Star Trek Discovery essay. Oh, mm, that's yes. a good one. Yeah, a very good one. All right. Uh, thank you again so much. Thanks, guys. This is super fun. Yeah, and stay safe in the uh, corona capital of the planet. <laughs> With the sexiest governor in the world, apparently. <laughs> All right, so for today's wildflower, Stanford researchers devised treatment that relieved depression in 90% of participants in small study. So this is pretty neat. Um, Stanford researchers used high doses of magnetic stimulation uh, to treat patients with severe depression. Whoa. And there's like this picture, there's this picture of like a, a guy who looks a little bit like Zach Galifianakis, <laughs> like po- <laughs> pointing what looks to be like gray bongo drums, like at this old lady's head. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know she's old. You don't need to call her an old lady. Okay. She looks great. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's she's got a popped collar, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's just by nature of the seat she's sitting in. No, no, no yeah. I, I think in the picture I think below. Yeah, yeah, Deirdre Layman. You know, she's got that swag. Oh yeah. no, yeah, she's popping that collar. Yeah, right. yeah, no, that's a that's a purposeful design choice. So one of the reasons this stood out to me in particular is because they're talking a lot about folks with um, bipolar disorder, and bipolar disorder is notoriously difficult to treat. Um, it is one of the mental illnesses that essentially requires, much like schizophrenia, it absolutely requires medication to properly treat. Mm-hmm. Um, and talk therapy is not as well as like lifestyle changes and kind of behavioral psych are not super effective in treating it. Um, and and all the medicines for depression, you know, bipolar, one of the poles is depression. And if you if you have bipolar bipolar disorder and you take a depression med, you will. Uh, almost always just become manic. Yeah, so SSRIs, which are super effective in treating major depression in unipolar depression, are incredibly often very dangerous for some bipolar sufferers to take because they trigger extreme mania. 
Um, so it's very difficult to treat the depression side of bipolar disorder. Uh, usually it's used through uh, atypical antipsychotics, which can have a lot of really detrimental effects in terms of weight gain, increased cholesterol and triglycerides. They also make you very sedated. So treating the depression end of bipolar is it's a little bit easier to treat mania than it is depression. So any kind of uh, treatment regimen that goes beyond medication or the more like stereotypical therapeutic method methods like cognitive behavioral therapy and such uh, is very, very promising for people with bipolar disorder. So essentially what they did is they um, use this transcranial magnetic stimulation where uh, people were subjected to 1800 pulses of this magnetic Thing. Yeah, yeah, shifting field. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the, uh, I, I, I'm ICP here. I have no idea how magnets work. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, I ble- uh, believe and recognize miracles and uh, magnets. Uh, th- this looks to be an electromagnetic system. And so, essentially, what happens is when you have a coil of uh, wire or something that you can put a current through, if you uh, create a flux in the current, which is just a, a rate of change over time, um, you induce a magnetic flux that's uh, perpendicular to that field, but proportional to the current flux. So they're basically running high current through these, you know, uh, coils, which is inducing a very strong localized magnetic field, like, like literally right on the skull. So so like the, those gray things that look like bongo drums are these coils yep. and like they're basically turning a magnet on and off a bunch of times. Yep. Okay. And so these these this took place over uh, 10 minute treatments. 10 sessions per day with 50 minute breaks in between. So this is like a really intensive treatment. Yeah. Like in terms of just time and like physically being there. Um, On average, three days of the therapy were enough for participants to have immediate relief from depression. And it has a really low recidivism rate, unlike many other uh, depression treatments, such as the earlier uh, versions of this magnetic stimulation that were done with fewer pulses and shorter periods of time. And then also compared to electroshock therapy, which is kind of at this point the gold standard for treating extreme depression in bipolar patients uh, when when kind of all else fails. So and they've also found very few side effects other than people not really feeling great while they're undergoing the treatment, people feeling uh, like nauseous or um, Uh, fatigued. But then after that, all of the people who have undergone this treatment feel great and they feel great for like a pretty long time afterwards. So that seems really promising to me. Yeah. One month after the therapy, 60 percent of participants were still in remission from depression. Follow up studies are underway to determine the duration of the antidepressant effects. So this is a um, we're reading this off of the Stanford website and just I guess one one thing to think about is this is a press release from Stanford, so this is not reporting. They're not doing anything particularly uh, hard-hitting and figuring out whether or not, you know, like, doing anything journalistic. This is just, uh, we're basically reading a, a press release. Well, we're, re- so. we're reading a, yeah. a summary of a scientific study yeah. that they did. Yeah, so, yeah. so it's, it's exciting. It's exciting. Well, we'll post it in the link. You can find the link to the study itself in the article, um, which I think is really only useful to you if you are a medical scientist. So that's been my experience with reading medical science articles. <laughs> 
So they're calling it the Stanford Accelerated Intelligent Neuromodulation Therapy, or SAINT. They are canonizing themselves. (laughs) (laughs) And one thing they've noticed is that after treatment, people have a better ability to transition between different thought patterns to break uh, unuseful thought patterns. That's a really difficult symptom of general depression and especially bipolar depression is like an inability to pull yourself away from your own thoughts or seamlessly transition between tasks. Uh, And so... You know, it goes beyond it's it, it appears to in these very preliminary small scale studies, it appears to treat symptoms of depression that other treatments for depression and especially bipolar depression are not very effective at um, like transitioning between tasks is something that's very, very difficult for people who are suffering uh, from bipolar depression. So this reminds me of another uh, thing I had heard about uh, back in 2014 on a uh, Radiolab uh, podcast episode, which is probably suspect at this point. But they were talking about how the military uh, has a helmet that it basically like has little uh, magnetic pulses that it produces right near the temple that apparently help in skill learning and situational awareness. And so they um, had the, uh, the the interviewer uh, try it out um, while undergoing like a sniper training drill. And apparently like this is, you know, being used also to develop super soldier skills. Great. That's awesome. <laughs> Hell yeah. The saint, nice. The saint giveth, the saint taketh away. <laughs> so thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, and for thanks to Lida for coming on the show. And um, we are about to record a very special bonus episode. Very special. That is going to be all about basically the history of anti-Semitism across the, across the world over the last 3,000 years and contemporary uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, which I think are, you know, we talked when we did the episode on Flat Earth, I talked about it as sort of the culmination of every conspiracy theory. This one, I think, is more like the foundation of so many conspiracy theories. So it'll be an interesting um, corollary to that episode and other conspiracy theory episodes we've done. I really like the idea of doing conspiracy theory episodes for the bonus because it sort of gives you a chance to break away from the news. It's nice evergreen content. And it's stuff that I think is really Important. I think in order to understand the kind of white supremacist landscape of today, this is a really important topic to understand. Yeah. Know know thy enemy. Yes, absolutely. Know thy enemy. And as we're living in a time of increasing suspicion of institutions and power and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, like these are only going to become more common and more powerful. And It'll also help you look out for like dog whistles when you're doing your own work and critiquing the powers that be and the media and the political class. Like it's super important to recognize the very toxic elements of those critiques and they can sneak up on you. So we're going to provide you with the tools to criticize power while not being anti-Semitic. And you can find that content on our Patreon, patreon.com slash ironweeds. As little as $1 a month will get you some grade A bonus content and some stickers if you do $5 a month. Call now and you will also we'll double your order. <laughs> You'll get a second tub of OxyClean absolutely free. 
And you're also about to hear chapter 11 of Peter Kropotkin's The Conquest of Bread. This chapter is on free agreement. And we've talked a little bit before about how we're lacking in meat of how Kropotkin plans to structure and uh, organize a complex society without the state. And so here he will make his case for you on ways that that is already being done. And by already being done, I mean in the time that he's writing, so the late 19th century. And it does help to give more substance to his criticisms, I think. I have not. I I will fully admit I've only read part of the chapter yet. I haven't even gotten to recording it yet. But uh, you will be about to hear that. And I hope that you enjoy it. I hope it fills in some of the gaps that have been in the book thus far. And I hope it makes for an interesting listen. Kropotkin uh, did the original high, high hope stance, actually. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, so you can find us on Twitter. Ironweeds Pod. You can find us on Instagram. Ironweeds Pod. You can shoot us an email with comments, questions, concerns, criticisms at ironweedspod at gmail. Come, 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 come. Thank you so much for listening. We love you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Peace. Chapter 11. Free Agreement Accustomed as we are by hereditary prejudices and absolutely unsound education and training, to see government, legislation, and magistracy everywhere around, we have come to believe that man would tear his fellow man to pieces like a wild beast the day the police took his eye off him, that chaos would come about if authority were overthrown during a revolution. And with our eyes shut, we pass by thousands and thousands of human groupings which form themselves freely, without any intervention of the law, and attain results infinitely superior to those achieved under governmental tutelage. If you open a daily paper, you find its pages are entirely devoted to government transactions and to political jobbery. A Chinaman reading it would believe that in Europe nothing gets done save by order of some master. You find nothing in them about institutions that spring up, grow up, and develop without ministerial prescription. Nothing, or hardly nothing. Even when there is a heading, sundry events, it is because they are connected with the police. A family drama, an act of rebellion, will only be mentioned if the police have appeared on the scene. 350 million Europeans love or hate one another, work or live on their incomes, But apart from literature, theater, or sport, their lives remain ignored by newspapers if government have not intervened in some way or other. It is even so with history. We know the least details of the life of a king or of a parliament. All good and bad speeches pronounced by politicians have been preserved. Speeches that have never had the least influence on the vote of a single member, as an old parliamentarian said. Royal visits, good or bad humor of politicians, jokes or intrigues, are all carefully recorded for posterity. But we have the greatest difficulty to reconstitute a city of the Middle Ages, to understand the mechanism of that immense commerce that was carried on between Hanseatic cities, or to know how the city of Rouen built its cathedral. If a scholar spends his life in studying these questions, his works remain unknown, and parliamentary histories, that is to say the defective ones, as they only treat one side of social life, multiply are circulated, are taught in schools. And we do not even perceive the prodigious work accomplished every day by spontaneous groups of men, 
which constitutes the chief work of our century. We therefore propose to point out some of these most striking manifestations and to prove that men, as soon as their interests do not absolutely clash, act in concert, harmoniously, and perform collective work of a very complex nature. It is evident that in present society, based on individual property, that is to say, on plunder and on a narrow-minded and therefore foolish individualism, facts of this kind are necessarily few in number. Agreements are not always perfectly free and often have a mean, if not execrable, aim. But what concerns us is not to give examples which we could blindly follow and which, moreover, present society could not possibly give us. What we have to do is prove that, in spite of the authoritarian individualism which stifles us, there remains in our life, taken as a whole, a great part in which we only act by free agreement, and that it would be much easier than we think to dispense with government. In support of our view, we have already mentioned railways, and we are about to return to them. We know that Europe has a system of railways, 175,000 miles long, and that on this network you can nowadays travel from north to south, from east to west, from Madrid to Petersburg, and from Calais to Constantinople, without stoppages, without even changing carriages, when you travel by express. More than that, a parcel thrown into a station will find its addressee anywhere, in Turkey or in Central Asia, without more formality needed for sending it than writing its destination on a bit of paper. This result might have been obtained in two ways. A Napoleon, a Bismarck, or some potentate having conquered Europe would, from Paris, Berlin, or Rome, draw a railway map and regulate the hours of the trains. The Russian Tsar Nicholas I dreamt of taking such action. When he was shown rough drafts of railways between Moscow and Petersburg, he seized a ruler and drew on the map of Russia a straight line between these two capitals, saying, Here is the plan. And the road was built in a straight line, filling in deep ravines, building bridges of giddy height, which had to be abandoned a few years later, at a cost of about 120,000 to 150,000 pounds per English mile. This is one way, but happily things were managed differently. Railways were constructed piece by piece, the pieces were joined together, and the hundred diverse companies to whom these pieces belonged came to an understanding concerning the arrival and departure of their trains and the running of carriages on their rails from all countries without unloading merchandise as it passes from one network to another. All this was done by free agreement, by exchange of letters and proposals, by congresses at which delegates met to discuss certain special subjects but not to make laws. After the Congress, the delegates returned to their companies, not with a law, but with the draft of a contract to be accepted or rejected. There were certainly obstinate men who would not be convinced, but a common interest compelled them to agree without invoking the help of armies against the refractory members. This immense network of railways connected together, and the enormous traffic it has given rise to, no doubt constitutes the most striking trait of our century, and it is the result of free agreement. If a man had foreseen or predicted it fifty years ago, our grandfathers would have thought him idiotic or mad. They would have said, Never will you be able to make the shareholders of a hundred companies listen to reason. It is a utopia, a fairy tale. A central government with an iron director can alone enforce it. And the most interesting thing in this organization is that there is no European central government of railways. Nothing. No minister of railways, no dictator, not even a continental parliament 
not even a directing committee. Everything is done by contract. So we ask the believers in the state, who pretend that we can never do without a central government were it only for regulating traffic, we ask them, but how do European railways manage without them? How do they continue to convey millions of travelers and mountains of luggage across a continent? If companies owning railways have been able to agree, why should railway workers, who would take possession of railways, not agree likewise? And if the Petersburg Warsaw Company and that of Paris Belfort can act in harmony without giving themselves the luxury of a common commander, why, in the midst of our societies, consisting of groups of free workers, should we need a government? When we endeavor to prove by examples that even today, in spite of the iniquitous organization of society as a whole, men, provided their instincts be not diametrically opposed, agree without the intervention of authority, we do not ignore the objections that will be put forth. These examples have their defective side, because it is impossible to quote a single organization exempt from the exploitation of the weak by the strong, the poor by the rich. That is why status will not fail to tell us with their wanted logic. You see that the intervention of the state is necessary to put an end to this exploitation. Only they forget the lessons of history. They do not tell us to what extent the state itself has contributed towards the existing order by creating proletarians and delivering them up to exploiters. They also forget to tell us if it is possible to put an end to exploitation while the primal causes, private capital and poverty, two-thirds of which are artificially created by the state, continue to exist. As regards the complete harmony among railway companies, we expect them to say, do you not see railway companies oppress and ill-use their employers and their travelers? The state must intervene to protect the public. But have we not often repeated that as long as there are capitalists, this abuse of power will be perpetuated? It is precisely the state, the would-be benefactor, that has given to the companies that monopoly which they possess today. Has it not created concessions, guarantees? Has it not sent its soldiers against railway men on strike? And during the first trials, we see it in Russia, has it not extended the privilege to forbidding the press mentioning railway accidents so as not to depreciate the shares it guaranteed? Has it not favored the monopoly which has anointed the Vanderbilts and the Polyakovs, the directors of the PLM, the CPR, the St. Goddard, the kings of the times. Therefore, if we give as an example the tacit agreement come to between railway companies, it is by no means as an ideal of economical management, nor even an ideal of technical organization. It is to show that if capitalists, without any other aim than that of augmenting their dividends at other people's expense, can exploit railways successfully without establishing an international department, Societies of working men will be able to do it just as well, and even better, without nominating a Ministry of European Railways. Another objection is raised that is more serious at first sight. We might be told that the agreement we speak of is not perfectly free, that the large companies lay down the law to the small ones. They might, for example, quote a certain rich company compelling travelers who go from Berlin to Bale to pass via Cologne and Frankfurt instead of taking the Leipzig route, a second carrying goods 60 or 130 miles in a roundabout way, on long distances, to favor influential shareholders, a third ruining secondary lines. 
In the United States, travelers and goods are sometimes compelled to travel impossibly circuitous routes so that dollars may flow into the pocket of a Vanderbilt. Our answer will be the same. As long as capital exists, the greater capital will oppress the lesser. But oppression does not result from capital only. It is also owing to the support given them by the state, to monopoly created by the state in their favor, that certain large companies oppress the little ones. The early socialists have shown how English legislation did all in its powers to ruin small industries, to drive the peasant to poverty, and deliver over to wealthy industrial employers battalions of men compelled to work for no matter what salary. Railway legislation did exactly the same. Strategic lines, subsidized lines, companies which received the international mail monopoly, everything was brought into play to forward wealthy financiers' interests. When Rothschild, creditor to all European states, puts capital in a railway, his faithful subjects, the ministers, will do their best to make him earn more. In the United States, in the democracy that authoritarians hold up to us as an ideal, the most scandalous fraudulency has crept into everything that concerns railroads. Thus, if a company ruins its competitors by cheap fares, it is often enabled to do so because it is reimbursed by land given to it by the state for a gratuity. Documents recently published concerning the American wheat trade have fully shown up the part played by the state in the exploitation of the weak by the strong. Here, too, the power of accumulated capital has grown tenfold and a hundredfold by state help, so that when we see syndicates of railway companies, a product of free agreement, succeeding in protecting their small companies against big ones, we are astonished at the intrinsic force of free agreement that can hold its own against all-powerful capital favored by the state. It is a fact that little companies exist, in spite of the state's partiality. If in France, land of centralization, we only see five or six large companies, there are more than a hundred and ten in Great Britain who agree remarkably well, and who are certainly better organized for the rapid transit of travelers and goods than the French and German companies. Moreover, that is not the question. Large capital, favored by the state, can always, if it be to its advantage, crush the lesser one. What is of importance to us is this. The agreement between hundreds of companies to whom the railways of Europe belong was established without intervention of a central government laying down the law to the diverse societies. It has subsisted by means of congresses composed of delegates who discuss among themselves and submit proposals, not laws, to their constituents. It is a new principle that differs completely from all governmental principle, monarchical or republican, absolute or parliamentarian. It is an innovation that has been timidly introduced into the customs of Europe, but has come to stay. How often have we not read in the writings of state-loving socialists, who then will undertake the regulation of canal traffic in future society? Should it enter the mind of one of your anarchist comrades to put his barge across a canal and obstruct thousands of boats, who will force him to yield to reason? Let us confess the supposition to be somewhat fanciful. Yet it might be said, for instance, should a certain commune or a group of communes want to make their barges pass before others, they might perhaps block the canal in order to carry stones, while wheat, needed in another commune, would have to stand by. Who then would regulate the barge traffic if not the government? 
But real life has again demonstrated that government can be very well dispensed with here as elsewhere. Free agreement, free organization, replace that noxious and costly system, and do better. We know what canals mean to Holland. They are its highways. We also know how much traffic there is on the canals. What is carried along our high roads and railroads is transported on canal boats in Holland. There you could find cause to fight, to make your boats pass before others. There the government might really interfere to keep the traffic in order. Yet it is not so. The Dutch settled matters in a more practical way, long ago, by founding a kind of guild or syndicates of boatmen. These were free associations sprung from the very needs of navigation. The right-of-way for the boats was adjusted by a certain registered order. They followed one another in turn. None were allowed to get ahead of the others under pain of being excluded from the guild. None could station more than a certain number of days along the quay, and if the owner found no goods to carry during that time, so much the worse for him. He had to depart with his empty barge to leave room for newcomers. Obstruction was thus avoided, even though the competition between the private owners of the boats continued to exist. Were the latter suppressed, the agreement would have been only the more cordial. It is unnecessary to add that the shipowners could adhere or not to the syndicate. That was their business, but most of them elected to join it. Moreover, these syndicates offered such great advantages that they spread also along the Rhine, the Weser, the Oder, and as far as Berlin. The boatmen did not wait for a great Bismarck to annex Holland to Germany and to appoint a supreme head councillor of the General State's canal navigation, with the number of stripes corresponding to the length of the title. They preferred coming to an international understanding. Besides, a number of shipowners, whose sailing vessels ply between Germany and Scandinavia, as well as Russia, have also joined these syndicates in order to regulate traffic in the Baltic and to bring about a certain harmony in the chaos of vessels. These associations have sprung up freely, recruiting volunteer adherents, and have not in common with governments. It is, however, more than probable that here, too, greater capital oppresses lesser. Maybe the syndicate has also a tendency to become a monopoly, especially where it receives the precious patronage of the state that will not fail to interfere with it. Let us not forget, either, that these syndicates represent associations whose members have only private interests at stake, and that if at the same time each shipowner were compelled, by the socializing of production, consumption, and exchange, to belong to a hundred other associations for the satisfying of his needs, things would have a different aspect. A group of shipowners, powerful on sea, would feel weak on land, and they would be obliged to lessen their claims in order to come to terms with railways, factories, and other groups. At any rate, without discussing the future, here is another spontaneous association that has dispensed with government. Let us quote more examples. As we are talking of ships and boats, let us mention one of the most splendid organizations that our century has brought forth, one of those we may with right be proud of, the English Lifeboat Association. It is known that every year more than a thousand ships are wrecked on the shores of England. At sea, a good ship seldom fears a storm. It is near the coasts that danger threatens. Rough seas that shatter her stem post, squalls that carry off her masts and sails, currents that render her unmanageable, reefs and sandbanks on which she runs aground. 
Even in olden times, when it was custom among inhabitants of the coast to light fires in order to attract vessels onto reefs and to seize their cargoes, they always strove to save the crew. Seeing a ship in distress, they launched their nutshells and went to the rescue of shipwrecked sailors, only too often finding a watery grave themselves. Every hamlet along the seashore has its legends of heroism, displayed by women as well as by men, to save crews in distress. No doubt the state and men of science have done something to diminish the number of casualties. Lighthouses, signals, charts, meteorological warnings have diminished them greatly, but there remain a thousand ships and several thousand human lives to be saved every year. To this end, a few men of goodwill put their shoulders to the wheel. Being good sailors and navigators themselves, they invented a lifeboat that could weather a storm without being torn to pieces or capsizing, and they set to work to interest the public in their venture, to collect the necessary funds for constructing boats and for stationing them along the coasts, wherever they could be of use. These men, not being Jacobins, did not turn to the government. They understood that to bring their enterprise to a successful issue, they must have cooperation, enthusiasm, the local knowledge, and especially the self-sacrifice of sailors. They also understood that to find men who at the first signal would launch their boat at night in a chaos of waves, not suffering themselves to be deterred by darkness or breakers, and struggling five, six, ten hours against the tide before reaching a vessel in distress, men ready to risk their lives to save those of others, there must be a feeling of solidarity, a spirit of sacrifice not to be bought with gloom. It was therefore a perfectly spontaneous movement, sprung from agreement and individual initiative. Hundreds of local groups arose along the coasts. The initiators had the common sense not to pose as masters. They looked for sagacity in the fishermen's hamlets, and when a lord sent a thousand pounds to a village on the coast to erect a lifeboat station, and his offer was accepted, he left the choice of a site to the local fishermen and sailors. Models of new boats were not submitted to the Admiralty. We read in a report of the association, quote, As it is of importance that lifeboat men should have full confidence in the vessel they man, the committee will make a point of constructing and equipping the boats according to the lifeboatman's expressed wish. In consequence, every year brings with it new improvements. The work is wholly conducted by volunteers organizing in committees and local groups, by mutual aid and agreement. Oh, anarchists. Moreover, they ask nothing of ratepayers, and in a year they may receive 40,000 pounds in spontaneous subscriptions. As to the results, here they are. In 1891, the association possessed 293 lifeboats. The same year, it saved 601 shipwrecked sailors and 33 vessels. Since its foundation, it has saved 32,671 human beings. In 1886, three lifeboats, with all their men having perished at sea, hundreds of new volunteers entered their names, organized themselves into local groups, and the agitation resulted in the construction of 20 additional boats. As we proceed, let us note that every year the association sends to the fishermen and sailors excellent barometers, at a price three times less than their sale price. It propagates meteorological knowledge and warns the parties concerned of the sudden changes predicted by men of science. Let us repeat that these hundreds of committees and local groups are not organized hierarchically and are composed exclusively of volunteers, lifeboatmen, and people interested in the work. 
The Central Committee, which is more of a center for correspondence, in no way interferes. It is true that when voting on a question of education or local taxation takes place in a district, these committees do not, as such, take part in the deliberations, a modesty which, unfortunately, the members of elected bodies do not imitate. But on the other hand, these brave men do not allow those who have never faced a storm to legislate for them about saving life. At the first signal of distress, they rush forth, concert, and go ahead. There are no galloons, but much goodwill. Let us take another society of the same kind, that of the Red Cross. The name matters little. Let us examine it. Imagine somebody saying 25 years ago, the state, capable as it is of massacring 20,000 men in a day and of wounding 50,000 more, is incapable of helping its own victims. As long as war exists, private initiative must intervene, and men of goodwill must organize internationally for this humane work. What mockery would not have met the man who would have dared thus to speak? To begin with, he would have been called utopian, and if that did not silence him, he would have been told, Volunteers will be found wanting precisely where they are most needed. Your hospitals will be centralized in a safe place, while what is indispensable will be wanting in the ambulances. National rivalry will cause poor soldiers to die without help. Disheartening remarks are only equaled by the number of speakers. Who of us has not heard men hold forth in this strain? Now we know what happened. Red Cross societies organized themselves freely, everywhere, in all countries, in thousands of localities. And when the War of 1870 to 1871 broke out, the volunteers set to work. Men and women offered their services. Thousands of hospitals and ambulances were organized. Trains were started carrying ambulances, provisions, linen, and medicaments for the wounded. The English committee sent entire convoys of food, clothing, tools, grain to sow, beasts of draft, even steam plows, with their attendants to help in the tillage of departments devastated by the war. As to the prophets ever ready to deny other men's courage, good sense, and intelligence, and believing themselves to be the only ones capable of ruling the world with a rod, none of their predictions were realized. The devotion of the Red Cross volunteers was beyond all praise. They were only too glad to occupy the most dangerous posts, and whereas the salaried doctors of the state fled with their staff when the Prussians approached, the Red Cross volunteers continued their work under fire, enduring the brutalities of Bismarck's and Napoleon's officers, lavishing their care on the wounded of all nationalities. Dutch, Italians, Swedes, Belgians, even Japanese and Chinese agreed remarkably well. They distributed their hospitals and their ambulances according to the needs of the occasion. They vied with one another, especially in the hygiene of their hospitals. And there is many a Frenchman who still speaks with deep gratitude of the tender care he received from a Dutch or German volunteer in the Red Cross ambulances. But what is this to an authoritarian? His ideal is the regiment doctor, salaried by the state. What does he care for the Red Cross and its hygienic hospitals, if the nurses be not functionaries? Here is then an organization, sprung up but yesterday, and which reckons its members by hundreds of thousands, possesses ambulances, hospital trains, elaborates new processes for treating wounds, and so on, and is due to the spontaneous initiative of a few devoted men. Perhaps we shall be told that the state has something to do with this organization. Yes, states have laid hands on it to seize it, 
The directing committees are presided over by those whom flunkies call princes of the blood. Emperors and queens lavishly patronize the national committees. But it is not to this patronage that the success of the organization is due. It is to the thousand local committees of each nation, to the activity of individuals, to the devotion of all those who try to help the victims of war. And this devotion would be far greater if the state did not meddle with it. In any case, it was not by the order of an international directing committee that Englishmen and Japanese, Swedes and Chinamen, bestirred themselves to send help to the wounded in 1871. It was not by order of an international ministry that hospitals rose on the invaded territory and that ambulances were carried onto the battlefield. It was by the initiative of volunteers from each country. Once on the spot, they did not get hold of one another by the hair as foreseen by Jacobins. They all set to work without distinction of nationality. We may regret that such great efforts should be put to the service of so bad a cause, and ask ourselves, like the poet's child, why inflict wounds if you were to heal them afterwards? In striving to destroy the power of capital and bourgeois authority, we work to put an end to massacres, and we would far rather see the Red Cross volunteers put forth their activity to bring about, with us, the suppression of war. But we had to mention this immense organization as another illustration of results produced by free agreement and free aid. If we wish to multiply examples taken from the art of exterminating men, we should never end. Suffice to quote the numerous societies to which the German army owes its force, that does not only depend on discipline, as is generally believed. I mean the societies whose aim is to propagate military knowledge. At one of the last congresses of the Military Alliance, delegates from 2,452 federated societies, comprising 151,712 members, were present. But there are, besides, very numerous shooting, military games, strategical games, topographical study societies. These are the workshops in which the technical knowledge of the German army is developed, not in regimental schools. It is a formidable network of all kinds of societies, including military men and civilians, geographers and gymnasts, sportsmen and technologists, which rise up spontaneously, organize, federate, discuss, and explore the country. It is these voluntary and free associations that make up the real backbone of the German army. Their aim is execrable. It is the maintenance of the empire. But what concerns us is to point out that, in spite of military organization being the great mission of the state, success in this branch is the more certain, the more it is left to the free agreement of groups and to the free initiative of individuals. Even in matters pertaining to war, free agreement is thus appealed to. And to further prove our assertion, let us mention the 300,000 British volunteers, the British National Artillery Association, and the Society, now in course of organization, for the defense of England's coasts, as well as the appeals made to the commercial fleet, the Bicyclists' Corps, and the new organizations of private motor cars and steam launches. The state is abdicating and appealing in its holy functions to private individuals. Everywhere, free organization trespasses on its domain. And yet, the facts we have quoted let us catch only a glimpse of what free agreement has in store for us in the future when there will be no more state.